Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hello. Uh, it's the day one of the national pepperoni shortage. And, uh, you know, we're all in this together. There actually apparently is a, a, I feel like I'm Jay Leno all of a sudden. Did you hear about this? Do you know about this? That's a pepperoni shortage. Do you know about this? Uh, but there apparently is one. And, you know, it's just one more way that in which we're living in a national nightmare. All right, but we're going to try to cheer you up, get you through the first day of the pepperoni shortage. Uh, we've got terrific guests here on the nose. We are going to talk uh, about, um, well, at the, near the end of the show, we're going to talk about a movie that we all watched. And as I said during before the news, I'm not going to spoil that discussion for you. Like, I'll tease it a little bit more and say, you know, sometimes we have really kind of spirited back and forths. You know, some people like the movie, some people don't. Sometimes I will adopt a contrary position just to make everything interesting because, you know, if the other two or three people liked something the same way, then I'll pretend I didn't like it or something. None of that's going to happen. Nothing like that is going to happen in this particular conversation. We're also going to talk about the uh, disappearance of an ice cream truck jingle that you hated, but for different reasons than the fact that you hated it. Uh, and also we're going to tell you what's replacing it, which is really kind of stunning. It's not the... I don't know. It's not the guy I would have gone to for an ice cream truck jingle, but I would have been wrong. He's written a really good one. But to begin, well, let me introduce the panelists. First of all, James Hanley. We're so happy to hear his voice back on the show. It's been a while. James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, uh, everything, everything, basically. Um, she is, Carolyn Payne is the everything bagel of entertainment. Uh, that's, I think, somewhere on her her resume. I like that. I'm going to put that <laughs> on my uh, resume and I would, business card. <laughs> I would trademark that immediately if I were you. So we're going to begin by talking about a subject dear to the heart of James Hanley and actually is considerably less dear to the heart of Carolyn Payne. Uh, and that is movie theaters. Um, I uh, Movie theaters right now, well, apparently only about 250 movie theaters in America are even making official box office reports. Um, and although uh, Cine Studio, uh, the um, the wonderful Trinity-based um, movie theater that James helped to birth, uh, is back uh, and running, um, most movie movie theaters aren't, and it kind of means that the box office uh, stuff is just like this weird. The here are I think among the new releases, the top box office hits are The Wretched, The Rental, Relic, Followed and The Big Ugly, which all of which kind of sums up the present moment, but I don't know what any of those movies are. Um, and in the top 20 arc is Killer Raccoons Part 2, Dark Christmas, Dark something. I don't know what I, you actually you read for a part. You read for the part of Shelley there in the uh, Killer Raccoons. Did you not, Carolyn? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just sad I didn't get it, but at least I have something to look forward to watch. Right. <laughs> so, look forward to watching that. So, James, obviously, this is a, a sad time for you. Uh, the movie theaters are, are such a, a great love uh, of yours. But I, I think I just would like to step back and let you dilate upon that fact. Uh, what are you thinking about these days? Well, I must say that I miss my favorite activity, which is being in the dark with people watching a movie on a big screen. Um, and although I'm glad to say we are open at least part of the week at Sydney Studio, um, 
I think um, it's a much different experience with people obviously being very careful and a very limited audience. Um, but I think that also, uh, I mean, we're among a very small number of art theaters that have been able to open. I think that there are many, many art theaters, for example, that are very small and they can't really do social distancing. And um, so many of them have gone to virtual cinema. They, they, they have uh, films on their website that people can watch. But um, the big thing really is that the industry itself has more or less come to a halt which is why all these films that you haven't heard of are on the charts, because those expensive productions that are in the can and waiting to be released, um, nobody wants to be first really to test this market. And one of the curious things, of course, that will happen is that the test market is going to be outside the United States, which is a totally new paradigm and nobody knows where that's going to go. Um, I think that it's fair to say that part of what is going to be a consequence is that the industry will be changed forever by this. There are so many aspects of it that are, um, you know, like things to, to think about and, and discuss really that uh, are all new. Um, one of which, for example, is um, the actual nature of the industry itself, how films are released. There are moves in the industry, obviously, that trying to take advantage of the situation and basically convert the entire system to virtual cinema, which I think will not happen. I do think that when things come back, I think cinema will, will come back. But it's a time of great sort of earthquake in the industry. And for people who love being in the dark in a movie theater, it's really a tough time. Well, just to um, have you maybe double down on a thing that you mentioned, but people might not have quite picked up on uh, the the movie that was going to be the big bet that, that they were probably going to be first uh, to to screen. The big movie is Tenet, a new Christopher Nolan movie, uh, and it is going to be screened, just not in America. Starting August 26th, the movie will screen in more than yeah. 70 countries, South Korea, Australia, Canada, much of Europe, but not the United States. So, James, just to stay with you for another second or two, I mean, we're we're now kind of a second run market. That's right. I mean, that's part of this sort of revolution, really. It's been coming for a long time in the sense that long before the virus, some grosses of major films were larger in foreign or non-US territories uh, than they were in the US. And so it was on the cards that the, uh, the sort of equal force of the entire world uh, for movies it was going in that direction. In the case of Tenet, I think Tenet has, is sort of like all of Warner Brothers is riding on this film and it happens to be Christopher Nolan's film. And Christopher Nolan, of course, is, uh, has invested a lot of time and money in not just making the film, but also putting it on physical film and having prints made for IMAX, for example, physical film prints for IMAX. And uh, there's, you know, great, uh, the number of people waiting to see those uh, film prints is huge. And it's true that my guess now is that it's going to be quite a while before it, they, they open here because the theaters are simply not really, the, the large theaters in the chains are really not ready to go. So it is going to be a different situation that nobody really knows how it will play out. But I do think in some ways it's a good thing in that instead of being totally U.S. centric, that these films, which are 
really international productions and they really have interest for people all over the world that it doesn't have to be something that well one favorite group of people gets to see it first that it's going to be a much broader market all right so carolyn before we uh get you to talk about how you feel about that particular subject we, we i was mentioning before we went on the air that there was this kind of feeling that you know we're nearing that point where everything that was in post-production when the pandemic struck uh, is going to be shown uh, or held back for all the reasons that James just described. And there's not going to be any new product coming. There's going to, we haven't really hit, I think, that big gulf. But as you pointed out, it is, there are people trying to do shoots right now. And, and you have been on one of those sets. And so what was that? What was that like? Yeah. So um, Screen Actors Guild, SAG, is allowing some filming to take place, but there are very strict regulations. Um, so it's pretty bizarre. Some of the, some of the times you're talking to somebody and they're not actually even in front of you. You're just, they have the cameraman filming you talking and then they, you know, flip, they get everything, your dialogue and then flip it around and get the dialogue for the other actor so that you're not actually face to face when possible. Um, I know that they're going to be doing a lot of trick, like trickery where instead of having um you know 40 extras on set they have only like 10 and they're going to be using camera angles and um digital imaging to create larger scenes um and it's just kind of chaotic on set because they aren't really doing um they aren't doing hair and makeup often you kind of have to get yourself camera ready or they have limited hair and makeup um you, you have the option of having providing your own wardrobe for a lot of stuff. Um, so it, it just is a very different experience. They aren't providing as much food on set and the food that is there is prepackaged. So, um, you know, without craft services and hair and makeup and wardrobe. And a lot of them are working with more of a skeleton crew to keep the numbers down if you're filming inside. It's a very different experience. Um, I have to say I felt 100% safe. Um, I have worked twice uh, in the past, I've worked on two sets and I felt safe, but it is just, it, it's a very challenging experience. Um, and, and the work is just very few and far between. So it's really, it's, it's hard to, um, to get work, but I, I, things are trying to film so that we can keep up with that and so that we all have things to watch. Uh, but it's just a really, it's really slow going. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see the final products. Uh, I wonder how much is going to suffer and how much you'll notice a difference. Yes, I'm sure by the time Killer Raccoons 3 starts shooting, they're going to have solved a lot of these problems. Um, yeah, but, although uh, I will say, like, I wish I had, like, shot a whole bunch of indie movies, like, last year <laughs> and just taken a chance. Like, because now's the time where those indie movies, like James said, like, they're just going to get viewed like anything all the wild stuff and i wish i hadn't turned down just like wild projects and i had just shot all sorts of garbage because <laughs> now that's what's out there i mean not there are good ones too but like i wish i would have just said yes to anything and everything and just shot a whole bunch of indie films and taken a chance <laughs> yeah. so um so james one of the ways one of the kinds of movie watching that that has rebounded faster and it was on its deathbed uh, is the drive-in movie uh and obviously you can go to a drive-in movie uh and not incur some of the risks that we've been talking about essentially not incur any of the risks that we're talking about uh and there's even talk i guess walmart is going to start showing drive-in movies <laughs> in its parking lots so 
James, somehow or other, although I have had, you know, okay cinematic experiences at drive-ins, there's there's something about all that that's sort of like people who want to do this, they want to be in the dark in a car while there's a movie playing, which is probably a little <laughs> bit different from the immersive experience that you were talking about before. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, uh, you have to see this in the context of the fact that drive-ins have become a sort of uh, a mythological uh, item that is being restored now that a lot of, especially younger people have heard about, but of course drive-ins <laughs> largely disappeared. Not entirely in Connecticut, I should say. Uh, the one in, there's at least one in Park Hampstead, there's the Mansfield drive-in, which are both operating. I mean, the drive-in experience to me is like a social, it's a social experience of a certain kind that um, I'm glad it's there, put it like that, and I'm glad it's bringing in some income to filmmakers and distributors who are doing this. But it is very different from uh, the, the the nature of sitting in a cinema. I, I I see it as kind of a novelty. I mean, I've enjoyed a drive-in from from time to time in, Ma in Mansfield, for example. Uh, or the, in the past, there was this. I think one of the biggest in the country was just north of Hartford, um, uh, where you could you could actually see the movie from the highway. Um, I think that that's an experience that is coming back as kind of a fad. I wonder how long that will really last because it's expensive to set up these temporary sites and they're not sites that are going to operate, obviously, when the weather gets bad. Um, it's, it's good that something is happening, I would say, but <laughs> to me, not, the, not something I'm crazy about. Right. So we need to say this, Carolyn, uh, and I'm going to throw out a number here. Um, I'm going to say that 87% of the movies that you've seen in movie theaters in the past five years were movies that uh, Jonathan McNichol and I made you go see. So this is maybe not the shock to your system than it, that it is to James. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been laughing at this whole conversation, just waiting to chime in and say that I am having uh, no sorrow over the loss of being able to go to a movie theater at this time. Um, or any time I actually, yes, I hate going to the movies. Um, I always have it, it. It's like, I get anxiety in there. It's like, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go to the bathroom and then miss something. You know, I, I want snacks and I have to get up and go get more snacks and pay exorbitantly for them. If the movie sucks, I paid a lot to be there. And then you have to ride home in a car with people who love the movie and you're upset that it sucked. So I don't know. I mean, there's just all sorts of reasons that I just don't like going to the movies. Um, going to the drive-in, I, I feel like like as a kid, we would do that in the summer when we were on the Cape. And yeah, I mean, it was just kind of like a novelty, but I wasn't super keen on that either. And often the drive-in would have like, they would play older movies. It wasn't like first run movies anyway. Um, I, I will say that, that you know, going to the drive, go, yeah, go ahead, James. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say that's actually what's happening with these current uh, pop-up drive-ins. They're almost all showing older movies because yes. there aren't new movies that are really widely distributed. Right. So, Most of them are showing classics. Yeah, I mean, and that nostalgia kind of like fits that that mood there of the drive-in, so it works. But yeah, I I would be okay with getting to watch new release movies on my home TV for the rest of my existence. <laughs> Oh, Carolyn, please. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry, James. I just huh? broke your heart. I am so sorry. But I am just, I, I do think that there are some movies that definitely like a big screen 
Um, there are certain movies, like I, I guess even like the Star Wars, even the newer ones that have come out, like I did enjoy that kind of movie for sure, I think requires that sort of setting and that sort of grandeur of the large screen. But I, I have to say most- that I, I recently was in a position where I was trying to make two people watch uh, Ford versus Ferrari on a television. And I saw it in James's theater where it was really one of the most, you know, eye socket blowing out experiences I'd had in right. a while. Right, so like an action you know. movie, sure, but I don't need to well, see... More than, that's more than an action movie, but it's a way in which racing well, is, is shot. Right. You know, um, and, and if you don't see it on the big screen, you, you can sit there wondering, well, what's all the fuss about? Hey, we have to quickly switch topics or we're going to run out of time here. Oh, so, yeah. um we all know, uh, but although this isn't really something that we have to have a big argument about, I think it's sort of an interesting thing, thing to observe. Most of us have had the experience of the ice cream truck going through the neighborhood, uh, <laughs> playing the same song over and over again, and often parking someplace near where we are and playing the same song over and over again. And quite frequently, it is the song Turkey in the Straw. Uh, and we often, but played, you know, in this bell-like fashion. It's not like, you know, some fiddler playing it or something. I'm not sure that would be any better. But um, And we thought, this will never go away. They're just going to torture with us this with us for all time. Well, it turns out not, because in fact, <laughs> Turkey in the Straw, not because Turkey in the Straw is annoying. No, that is not the reason. But Turkey in the Straw has an ignominious past. I believe it started out as a folk tune in the British Isles, where it didn't really have any particular baggage. But of course, when it came to America, it started to be part of minstrelsy. Uh, there are lyrics to it, which I would not dream of repeating on the air because they're so offensive. And and so Turkey in the Straw is going away. And, um, and I don't know if it's entirely going to go away. Although it kind of raises the question, before we get to what's replacing it, which, which is what's really fascinating, but it does sort of raise the question, James, why did they ever have to play a song anyway? Why couldn't when they just jingle their bells? When I was growing up, the Good Humor Truck had these kind of jingle bells that I think the guy would actually have to, you know, pull on a lever or something to make them ring and stuff like that. I don't understand why a song had to be repeated over why, whose idea was that? I think that that was a sort of change, a paradigm change in thinking, because I remember those two, that the, the single sound of a bell or the tinking of a bell that made you sort of want to seek it out and you'd seek it out because it meant you could get an ice cream treat and it, it, it all had good associations. But I think that the advent of electronic um, devices to play tunes over and over again was taken over by a different set of people who just thought you play this loud and l- as loud as possible, as many times as possible. And it doesn't matter if you annoy people, it just is a matter of sort of breaking through all of the other noises and being completely dominant in the street where they're playing it. And it didn't, it, it ceased to be a sort of almost sort of aesthetic function of selling ice cream to being a sort of steamroller that, that, that <laughs> took over. And there's generations of people who've heard nothing else, of course, now. Right. I, I also feel like that they were setting up kind of a hostage situation or something. I mean, you want this to stop, right? You want this and you think, what can I do to make it stop? Well, I can either go over with a hammer and I'll probably get arrested or I can be one of the people who buys ice cream until this guy thinks he sold enough ice cream so that he can move on and annoy somebody else's neighborhood. Um, Carolyn, before we go to the replacement tune, is there any way that you feel the need to weigh in about this? Uh, Well, Yes. It, you know, obviously you hear the song and you think of ice cream and it has this great association where I actually just crave like a chocolate eclair ice cream bar or something. 
But I live in the West End, and the ice cream truck who drives through the West End not only plays this song, or now played, but it also has this voice at the end of the little melody. It goes, hello! (laughs) (laughs) Another part you read for and didn't get, and you did that so well just now. (laughs) That was really good, right? Yeah. And if you live in the West End, you know that I just nailed that. Yeah, just just throw it away. Don't even think about it. song play. But yeah. you get that hello, and it is actually haunting. It is very, uh, it sort of has this like killer clown vibe that is not, it does not at all feel like something you should be sending children rushing towards. <laughs> I have a whole new impression now. <laughs> yeah, so in case you thought the ice cream song couldn't get any worse, the West End managed to do that for, for right. me. Right. So now this isn't an intuitive leap that I would have made, but the Good Humor Company, once they were aware of the fact that they were playing a, a intensely racist minstrel song, although obviously they weren't playing it with words or anything like that, they thought, who can we get to write a new ice cream song? And so they turned to um, a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. His name is Riza. <laughs> I happen to have interviewed Riza in my life. Um, and actually, I should say the reason that I interviewed Riza, I'm pretty sure, is because I used to have this producer named Bobby Sherwood, who was one of the leading experts in the Wu-Tang Clan, and who, when I pointed this whole story out to him today, he said, well, they already did the most famous ice cream song in hip hop, So, which you might hear at the end of this. I don't know what Jonathan has planned. But anyway, here's what Riza came up with. This is the new, we are unveiling right now, the new Good Humor Jingle. Okay, now, Carolyn, just say yell hello now at the end of that. Hello. <laughs> All right. So, so James, I don't know. Of course, the, the question isn't how we feel about it right now. It's how we will feel about it when we've heard it, heard 5,000 iterations of it. But it, it seems like it might be a little less troubling. I don't know. What's your reaction? Yeah, I, I would say so. It actually, to me, actually sounded like somebody playing music, on like uh, Turkey in the Straw, which always sounded to me like some awful nightmare computer program that that (laughs) selected the most annoying tones and played them in the way that you really wanted it to go away quickly. I think this could work. The only thing I would think probably, I think given the quality of the loudspeakers on those trucks, I'm not sure you'll hear the low frequency part, but the actual um, principal part of it, I, I like it. Right. I mean, it does have this kind of a high-pitched glockenspiel sounding part. And then there's yeah. this kind of low groaning, crawling bass line that comes underneath it. It starts to sound like it's like Voldemort's music box or something. But um, <laughs> but, but, Carolyn, how about you? What's uh, What kind of rating are you going to give this? I actually dig it. I like it. And I feel like there's probably going to be some sort of hip-hop remix that uses it, that samples it. And I'm down for that, too. All right. <laughs> I'm being told that we are not going to be playing going out of the segment with ice cream by um, 
It's actually not even by Wu-Tang Clan, if you want to get technical. It's Raekwon and Ghostface Killer and a a lot of people from Wu-Tang Clan. But uh, Jonathan McNichols decided that that particular song, which is pretty unbelievably sexist, uh, is also not an appropriate way to address the situation that we're in. But anyway, (laughs) I I do feel as though we've accomplished something already, which is that we, it's like, I feel like I'm Casey Kasem or something, and I broke you know, a big song, you know, like I just I played this song. So uh, so going out to all you kids out there, we're going to play this song one more time. The terrific artist RZA with Ice Cream Truck Jingle. Okay, now, as promised, we're going to talk about She Dies Tomorrow, uh, which is uh, directed uh, by uh, Amy Simetz. Uh, It's her second feature film as writer-director. The last one was in 2012. I'm not sure what's been going on since then. Um, But uh, we actually also talked about her TV series, The Girlfriend Experience. This is kind of an ensemble piece. I guess nominally you would say an actress named Kate Lynn Schell as Amy is kind of the star of it. It is a a movie about uh, people who seem to be able to pass existential anxiety attacks to one another um, almost virally. So uh, she, uh, Amy, uh, suddenly uh, has this sense that she is going to die tomorrow. And then everybody that she meets and everybody who meets anybody that she has met uh, starts to have the same feeling. I'm not wrecking anything. This is all established in the first 10 minutes. It was supposed to be supposed to premiere this year's South by Southwest, which was canceled. It's had a limited uh, release in. Yes, you guessed it. Drive in theaters. uh, And now it's a video on demand. uh, And that's how we uh, saw it, I believe. So let's hear a little clip. You're going to hear. Um, a wonderful comic actress who is completely wasted in this movie, uh, Jane Adams. She plays Jane. I think she's the first person who gets the the sort of uh, I'm going to die tomorrow virus uh, from Amy. You're going to hear Chris Messino, I think is Jane's brother, and Kate Easleton as uh, Jason's wife, Susan, who never liked Jane in the first place. I don't know if that's important or not. Here's the clip. I just... We're all going to die. I just think we should be able to talk about it, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm dying. She's, she's funny, right? Yeah. No, she's joking. She's just, she's just joking around. Yeah, you're joking. Well, it's like I just have this feeling, the way that you know when you're about to get a cold the next day and it just hasn't hit yet, I know that's what is happening. I'm going to die tomorrow. But how do you know? I don't know. I just know. So you know it or you don't know it? Well, I know that I don't know. But I know I I don't want to be alone. And I know that I'm going to die tomorrow. All right. I know that I'm going to die tomorrow. But you don't know? I know that I'm going to die tomorrow. I know that I'm going to die tomorrow. Okay, great. So you don't know, right? I know that it's my birthday, and I want to talk about dolphin f- 
It's all I want to talk about tonight. I don't want to talk about death because I am not that old yet. Uh, so, yeah, I forget to mention that Jane shows up at Susan's birthday party and all she really wants to talk about is this new sense that she has, this very acute sense of dread and that she is going to die tomorrow. Um, all right. <laughs> I don't know which one of you to turn loose on this movie first. James, uh, I, I think you you get to uh, uh, hit the first tee shot. Well, I have to say, um, I with every time, especially at the beginning when Jane appears, I so thought this movie was going to catch fire with a very sort of like wry and funny sort of like not take itself seriously at all. But it goes in the opposite direction and, and, and it just is so so really full of itself being serious when it really needs to really let loose and make a make really make a joke of the whole thing it would have been entertaining then to me it was just like oh no really and 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 then it gets more serious and then you get to feel that a, a, a really good comic actor is is lost in this you know the talents are lost I, i'm afraid it was disappointing to me all right carolyn and now for an opposing view no, not really. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be amazing if I said this was the one movie I super loved that I've seen for this show? Um, it's it's not. It's actually probably one of the worst movies I've had to sit through. And, and, and that's saying a lot. Um, the good news about it is it's 84 minutes long, so it doesn't take too much of your time um, if you choose to sit down and try to go through it. Um, it is... It is the kind of movie that you are just waiting and waiting for something to happen. Right. Uh, or for some actor to, you know, act. <laughs> like for something, for somebody to deliver a performance that is in any way compelling to carry you through. Um, or or for a plot to, to take you somewhere. It is just, it, it tried really hard, I think, to be this like really like thinky, intellectual a uh, movie that people would talk about, but I mean, honestly, al although I was in a panic, I told Colin before we went on the air that I ended up staying up for probably about two hours, just laying in bed, concerned that I missed something, that I, I that something about this went over my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I was that really relieved that there was nothing there to that that it was not me. Even worse than that, it when is, you when you mentioned that to your roommate Alex, he became concerned that he missed something too, and he was right. not able to sleep. So uh, then Alex and I, then we it was it was the movie. Except instead of thinking we were going to die, we thought that we were just too stupid to digest a movie. You know, I, I <laughs> it was I, a stupidity I, virus. James, as I, I think I mentioned in the emails, I I never really go this route, or I try never to go this route. But I mean, this this movie has gotten some rave reviews in some pretty prestigious publications. Uh, I read twice the review, read twice through, kind of in the spirit of Carolyn wondering if I'd missed something. Uh, the review <laughs> that I got in the New York Times, and you know, usually if critics like something and I don't like it, or if uh, they don't like something and I like it, that can be kind of an exciting and enlivening experience. I mean, you know, with a good critic, you really love having some of your ideas challenged. Uh, and, but here, I just, <laughs> I don't think I've ever felt so disconnected from the critical establishment. I just thought, what in the world are these people thinking? Uh, I mean, this is so obviously a very immature movie, but I, I don't know. You probably read a lot more film criticism than I do. So what's your take? Well, I'd say that the, the critical establishment, but not only the critical establishment, but the um, 
vast intranet um, uh, critical conspiracy is is really suffering from shut-inness. And I think that there's really um, a desire to sort of somehow to somehow find something that is different and significant. But in this current atmosphere, it seems that a lot of the things are being picked that are being picked like that are really like uh, they're almost like insider jokes in a way. Let's see what we can do, you know, in a, in a way, because in this case, the positive reviews, I, I found myself like within five or 10 minutes when it didn't take fire as a some sort of satire or something like that. I mean, I felt the same way. I was wondering, what the hell? You know, what, what are these people seeing? It seems like there's a different atmosphere right now. And um, it, 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 I think it's also been affected by the fact that there's so many people at home. There are lots more people. If you go on something like Rotten Tomatoes, there's lots more people mingled in who are just sort of, you know, internet movie reviewers, I guess they call themselves. And so there's this vast tide of people um, uh, talking about movies who really don't have a particular reference point and are not really, they seem not to be associated with the film that they're talking about. They're just uh, like, it's almost like it's a sort of momentary sensation. And the reviews of this that were positive seemed like that to me. It just didn't seem like it engaged them even. And uh, it certainly didn't engage me for that. It just didn't have that substance. Carolyn, there's it was also- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. It was marketed really bizarrely because so before I knew we were talking about this, I had actually seen trailers for for the movie and had heard some buzz about it. I guess like read some stuff online and kind of like what James was saying, they were they were sort of pushing this movie and they build it as a horror comedy. And yeah. so I was excited to watch this. And mind you, I normally watch when we're talking about a movie. I, I have been known to watch it at like, you know, 4 a.m. the day before or something, last possible minute. I jumped in to watch this, uh, you know, Monday night. And because I had been so excited to see this, because I thought it was going to be something completely different. Um, it it was not a horror comedy at all. I don't even, I, I struggle with what I would call this as far as a genre. I mean, I guess it's. It's not even a horror film. I mean, it's. No, certain- it's not not a horror film it's like a um it's sort of like an unedited concept that is sort of past <laughs> and i sort of I was waiting for jane to turn to the camera and do like you know bud court in in, in one, you know like a wink at the camera or something i would have given anything for that right i mean i think you know, i've often thought said that a, a lot of horror is social anxiety uh, i think of rosemary's baby in particular you know this a lot of the that the anxiety in that movie is that at some point, as Mia Farrow's suspicions grow and grow, she's just going to have to deal with this incredibly awkward reality that all the people around her, including her husband, you know, are devil worshippers. You know, and it's just going to be such a socially difficult thing to deal with that it's it is some of the fear that you feel watching this movie. And I, and I think the the people who made She Dies Tomorrow were trying to maybe play with that idea, right? That you know, there's a way in which if you walk into a social situation with the, your own full load of of existential anxieties. 
you know, it's just kind of hit you in a sort of junior year of college way that, you know, that you are going to die someday, that you're you're a finite commodity like everybody else, <laughs> that life is a terminal condition. You know, you just can't unload that on a whole bunch of other people who are trying to be at a birthday party or, you know, working at a store or whatever. But I think but, you could, yeah. I think you could have if it was really a very clever satire. And right. If it had actually been a dark comedy, if yeah, this exactly. script had been retooled, if yeah. they had brought in somebody to like doctor it up and, and, and sort of shift some of the stuff, there are a lot of things that could have been a, a, a delightful dark comedy. You really could have taken this concept and worked with it in a different way. Yeah. Right. They're, they're working with some comic ideas. I mean, some of it is the just the nature of viral information, you know, uh, that that, you know, one person infects somebody else who infects somebody else. And, and as James was suggesting, too, that's probably happening even more now that people are housebound. You know, if you're feeling a certain way, you could probably unintentionally get the other person in the house to feel the other way, <laughs> the same way that you're <laughs> feeling, you know, and, and there's that's going on. And James, yeah. you know, there's a long tradition in movies of that idea of of something jumping from one character to another. I think of the Denzel uh, Washington, John Goodman, Donald Sutherland movie, Fallen, where, you know, I mean, something yeah. even more sinister is leaping from one person to another. And and that that's not comic. That's just really, really scary, which is another thing they could have done, right? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that's an example of a film where they were really skilled at creating that sense of, you know, dread and, and really being scary. And, and um, one of the aspects of it is that you keep it moving. You don't wait. You don't let these languorous scenes like a, like some of the scenes in She Dies Tomorrow seem like a home movie that nobody could bear losing a single frame. So they didn't edit it down. Um, whereas a good horror film or a good horror comedy would actually be moving along at a clip so that you almost felt, oh, what did I just miss there? And, and you get a sense of involvement. In this case, it was like, to me, turgid that you were waiting and waiting. Okay, I got the point now. Let's move on. And that's deadly to a comedy. And to a horror comedy, it's completely irrelevant. There is one character. It's actually the main character who, who does wonder if after her inevitable death, she can be made into a leather jacket, which is, could be kind of funny. But Carolyn, you know, as a comic actress, it's like she doesn't really do anything. It's kind of this very deadpan mumblecore uh, approach to that idea. That's the thing. If you if you can really do that and, and really carry that line and and conspire with the audience, that's really right. Fun. So does the fault fall on the director here who had uh, I, I mean, we definitely know that it, at least Jane Addams is a great comedic actress. And I'm sure this other, the the actress you said her name, I'm sure she is very capable too. And with, but so who, where does the fault lie here in the, in that falling short? Because I agree that is one of the concepts that in this movie, I really thought that they could. They, they could play with. Um, yeah, the Duplass, because, the Duplass brothers would have made a whole movie about somebody that, who wanted that, to be that, made into a leather right. jacket, I was right? I about to say the Duplass brothers could have done something with it, but also um, I think that you it's partly the director's fault, but you also needed to have a ruthless editor. You really did. I mean, you could have made this film. I mean, we were talking about 84 minutes not being long. I think it could have been made 50 minutes and it would have been much more entertaining if it had kept up its clip and if it avoided all these lone girls. It was like they they really enjoyed those like long, the, yes. the, it, 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 it was, 
you know, all of the imagery with the uh, the blood on the slides and the wine pouring and, you know, sort of looking at things through this microscope, they really see to enjoy that more in the editing and then then the dialogue even and keeping the dialogue at a pace, everything just moved at this. It felt like everything was this slow pour. Like everything well, it was might, slow it might well be that they spent a great deal of money on the special effects and they were they were making damn sure that they were going to have everything on screen and they couldn't hit, they couldn't cut it because it costs so much. Right. So we're going to wrap up here. I will just say that, you know, yes, mortal anxiety, anxiety about our mortality is something that we all share. Um, usually art has more to say to us about this as we move on uh, through our lives. We, you know, we encounter works of art that in fact do grapple with this terrible truth of our lives in very interesting ways. One line that st has stuck with me my entire life is from Tom McGuane's novel, 92 in the Shade. He says, life looked straight in the eye was unsupportable, as everyone knew by instinct. The great trick, contrary to the consensus of philosophy, is to avoid looking it straight in the eye. Everything askance, and it all shines on. I think about that on a regular basis. However, this movie is the bunny slope of existentialism. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to recommend some things that you will like, unlike this. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It is not dying, it is not dying. Lay down. We are back. It is time for me to thank Kat Pastor for being there in the studio, playing all these clips, making the whole show sound great, working with our guests, and making it possible for others of us to work remotely. One of the other people working remotely besides me is the episode producer, Jonathan McPants. And so thanks also to him. Uh, we're going to be back on Monday with one of our uh, typical scrambles, if there are such things. Uh, we are uh, committed. We kind of made a commitment for a while for many, many weeks now, actually, to devote some of our Monday show to the medical science and epidemiology behind the current pandemic. We'll have Vincent Racaniello, the host of This Week in Virology, which is a very geeky for source of excitement for me. But uh, if you've never heard him, I think you'll enjoy him, too. All right. So here we go. We're back. Um, and it's time to make some recommendations. James, I'm sure, I feel like you must have a pent up recommendations for us. I'm eager to hear them. <laughs> Well, my recommendation, of course, would be somehow, somehow find a, uh, a theater that will be showing probably in September, uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. It may be that it will show up in IMAX at, um, at the Providence Place IMAX Theater, which is one of the best in the world for seeing true film IMAX. Um, I'm sort of anxiously awaiting. I keep checking their website, hoping I can book tickets. Nothing yet, but that's in the future. The other thing I wanted to say is how much I've appreciated my husband and I, Norman, and I go to the farm markets, um, the the one in Mansfield, and also uh, there's the continuing market on a sort of distance basis, but still very good at the Coventry market. These farmers are really absolutely essential during this time. 
it is so amazing to be able to get their fresh products. And uh, it's a feeling of sanity amidst all of the incredibly difficult times. Um, so a shout out to all of those farmers, really, and how much we appreciate them. Yes, farmers markets and farm stands have been great, too. Uh, and uh, I've had a little less time to go to the markets lately. So the farm stands have been terrific. Um, we should uh, at some point generate a whole list of some of the really cool ones. All right. So, Carolyn, how about you? All right. Well, in um, in the spirit of a uh, horror, well, not horror, but a, a, a dark comedy movie that actually succeeds, in my opinion, um, I watched Blow the Man Down on Amazon Prime a little while back, um, and it is it it does for me kind of what I in in some ways like it succeeds in a lot of things that She Dies Tomorrow fails at. They're very different as far as plot, but um, Blow the Man Down is a dark comedy. It's set in a main town, and it's about these two sisters who um, have to. Uh, it's not giving anything away to know that they have to cover up a crime that one of them commits. And it's filled, the cast is filled with amazing character actors that you'll definitely recognize, even if you don't know their names. Um, and it is, it's really, it's a, it's a fun watch, uh, especially if you're a New Englander. It has that, they, they capture Maine and these small New England towns that like, especially the coastal ones really well. So I think that that's actually, it, that is that's a that's a good watch for sure. It's a good summer. It's a good summer night movie if you're like me and don't like to leave your house and now have excuses to not have to leave your house too much. All right, we should mention in terms of those character actors. I haven't seen this movie yet. It's a 2019 American black comedy, another dark comedy thriller film. Uh, but among those character actors is Margot Martindale. And yes. Um, you know, I mean, it's always a mistake to go see a movie because of certain actors in it or sit there in your house. And she see doesn't because, disappoint here. Yeah. So yeah, but, but if you're a fan of hers, yes. see it. Yeah. I mean, Margot Martindale rarely, if ever, disappoints. And so I'm going to have to stretch a little bit. You guys left me too much time, but I'll, I'll see what I can do here. Uh, so I was trying to build a little bit on our experience with She Dies Tomorrow. And so we've been talking a lot about this actress, Jane Addams, uh, and that may not be a familiar name to you. Although, Carolyn, you know her from, is it Cheers that you know her from? What, what, no, oh. um, Fraser. Fraser. She plays, um, Niles at one point is engaged to her. And uh, she that's kind of what I became aware. That's the first time I ever really remember seeing her. And she's spectacular in that. I right. have and that popped right into my mind because I recently rewatched a bunch of Frasier, uh, you know, during this time. Right. So I, what I'm going to recommend and I'm doing it with some trepidation because I haven't watched it since it came out. And I know that it kicks a lot of tripwires uh, it kicked tripwires then, and I think those tripwires are stretched even tighter right now. So I'm not—I can't guarantee you that this is going to land well. Uh, but it was—I <laughs> thought it was really terrific and thoughtful and interesting and and better than the premise of it would suggest. So it's called Hung. Uh, it is—it um, ran from 2009 to 2011 uh, on HBO, and I believe it is still available on, on HBO because I think everything is. Uh, and it stars an actor named Thomas Jean. It's set in Detroit where jobs are scarce. And uh, as his job is eliminated, uh, he resorts to male prostitution. Uh, he having a very specific asset that is suggested there in the title. But Jean Adams plays this kind of overwrought 
hyper intellectual new age person who for complicated reasons decides to become or attempts to become his pimp and she is i mean i think there's a lot of interesting things going in the, on in this series even though i'm a little scared to, to recommend it right now uh but she is certainly worth watching she no matter what you think of the series what uh, adams does with that concept and with that role is just spectacular uh, meanwhile i also have to just quickly uh recommend um, one of the bad decisions I made in my life was I was in New York and I, I was by myself and I could see a play and I chose Spring Awakening over in the Heights. Uh, and so I never saw it in the Heights. That's, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, uh, precursor uh, to Hamilton. And uh, so great performances right now on PBS has not the totality of In the Heights, but a thing about the making of In the Heights. And it's really terrific. Uh, it's uh, you really kind of get a sense anyway of how this whole thing came together. And of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda, we point to with pride also because he is uh, a Wesleyan uh, product. And uh, it's just terrific. Uh, it's uh, absolutely worth watching. You also get to see if you're kind of a Hamilton freak, uh, Christopher Jackson, who plays uh, George Washington in, in Hamilton, is also in In the Heights. So yeah, if you're looking for and I and I did check, you can stream it right there on your computer. So there you go. Uh, all right, thanks to everybody uh, who uh, helped out here today, and special thanks to James Hanley. So great to hear his voice uh, back on the air. Carolyn Payne is always a delight, uh, and so and thanks to all of you who listened. And we were gonna be we're gonna be back on Monday with. The Scramble. Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.